Welcome to the Effective Statistician with Alexander Schacht and Benjamin Pieske, the weekly podcast for statisticians in the health sector, designed to improve your leadership skills, widen your business acumen, and enhance your efficiency. In today's episode, we'll chat with Nikki Welton from Bristol University about her new approach of network meta-analysis, taking into account the target population characteristics. So basically, matching indirect comparisons on the population of interest. Very, very new research here, quite cutting edge, but very, very relevant for all kind of different parts of the clinical development program, as well as in commercialization in HDA and other settings. So stay tuned for this. This podcast is sponsored by PSI, a global member organization dedicated to leading and promoting best practice and industry initiatives. Join PSI today to further develop your statistical capabilities with access to special interest groups, the video-on-demand content library, free registration to all PSI webinars, and much, much more. Visit the PSI website at psiweb.org to learn more about PSI activities and become a PSI member. Hello, this is another episode of The Effective Statistician. And today I have a guest from Bristol University, Nikki Welton. Hi, how are you doing? I'm doing fine, thanks. Very good. Um, so let's start with a little bit of an introduction of yourself. Um, where have you kind of first been in touch with statistics and what has been your career up to now? Um, okay, so I, I did a, a maths degree at the University of Sheffield, um, where the majority of my, my options were in statistics. Um, so I've been introduced in maths and statistics for a long time. Um, I did a master's in statistics, um, uh, and now I'm working uh, as a statistician, but actually I'm becoming more and more of a health economist. So I, I do a sort of in, in this sort of in-between world between statistics and health economics. Oh, okay. Interesting. So, so where do you see the biggest kind of differences between health economics and statistics? Um, um, not as many differences as you might expect, actually. <laughs> um, uh, both both uh, are concerned with analysis of data to answer questions relating to sort of health, for example, um, and uh, both both groups of uh, researchers work on developing models to answer questions and extrapolate from data. Um, so actually, in some ways, it, it, they're, they're quite similar sorts of disciplines. It's just that the economists are much more concerned with costs and resource use and so on, whereas statisticians tend to focus more on clinical effectiveness. Okay, okay. Um, in terms of the clinical effectiveness, that's kind of the things that we want to talk about, um, indirect comparisons and, and these kind of things. How have you been kind of first got in, get in touch with, with indirect comparisons? Uh, well, I, I joined uh, the research group in Bristol in 2002 now, um, uh, the, the multi-parameter evidence synthesis group here. Um, which has really been working with Tony Addis, who's uh, really 
develop these methods and sort of uh, uh, he he's looking he, he's his interest is much more generally in bringing together pooling evidence from multiple sources where uh, different sources of evidence gave information on different functions of parameters, but it can still all be interlinked and, and, and brought together to answer important questions relating to policy. Um, and one of the key um, examples that he was working on were, were indirect comparisons and mixed treatment comparisons. Um, and and that, that area just has totally taken off because it, it allows us to answer exactly the sort of policy questions of interest as in how do these different treatments compare to each other um, yeah, which which then can allow you to answer what's the most effective and cost-effective treatment to, to be using. If you if you speak about policy, what do you mean by policy? Um, so I mean, uh, well, well, in the UK, for example, uh, uh, NICE make decisions about whether or not the NHS will provide um, funding for a particular treatment. So. That and that's what I mean by policy, I suppose, making uh, decisions about whether or not which treatments will be available for patients. So it's really about treatment guidelines. It's about guidelines and guidance. Yeah. 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 Okay. Okay. Um, so that explains why this work is really, really important because it directly affects the patients and which uh, therapies will become under which kind of conditions. Um, available to these. Um, yeah. I mean, that's right. And it's not just um, the patients with a particular disease, because by making decisions about what's the most cost-effective use of resources, that that then allows, you know, by, by not introducing inefficient treatments, it allows more money elsewhere in the system. So it actually affects all patients. Oh, that's a very, very interesting point of view, because, of course, you know, money overall is limited. So um, mm -hmm. it's about kind of optimizing the overall amount of money uh, and how that can be best spent on to, to increase population health. Yeah, yeah exactly. So, so in terms of the current um, scenario, what are the main approaches that are currently used uh, to inform policy in, when it comes to, to indirect comparisons? For indirect comparisons? Um, so, I mean, the whole issue with indirect comparisons is that usually we've got a treatment um, that, that maybe is a new treatment and we want to know whether or not it's worth using. And and what we want to do is compare that with its sort of the main competitor, the, the alternative treatment that you would use instead if you if you didn't use this new treatment. Um, but the problem is that the pharmaceutical industry don't tend to carry out randomised controlled trials directly comparing those two treatments of interest. Instead, both treatments will probably have been compared with some other um, comparator, like an older treatment. So what you tend to have is comparison of, say, drug A versus drug C and drug B versus drug C, but you don't have a comparison of A versus B. Um, so what we need are methods that can allow us to make that comparison using the evidence that we do have. Um, And uh, network meta-analysis methods um, allow us to be able to pull those data from those trials compared to, to treatment C and indirectly make a comparison between A and B. Um, and the important thing there is that it reflects uh, uh, the randomization in the trial. So we, we need to respect that the fact that the, 
that within a trial there's been a randomization which means that we've got a good estimate of the causal effect of, of a treatment um, so we need to make sure that that's respected and the, and, and the existing network meta-analysis methods do that yeah i think the um there's a couple of points on this. I think for certain diseases, the number of treatments, of course, is pretty big. So, so having kind of um, comparisons between each of all these different treatments is possibly not not possible. <laughs> no, no. I mean, it quickly becomes crazy if you've got four yeah. or five treatments. The number of particular, you know, pairwise combinations is massive. Yeah, and of course, kind of there's uh, there's an Evolvement of treatments over time, and um, you might just kind of compare to the standard of care at a given time point, but that doesn't mean that kind of two years ahead you have uh, a reasonable comparison, or maybe you know you want to still compare it to some some older, cheaper drugs, um, but that is basic, you know, not from a scientific point of view or just from a medical point of view not so interesting but it could be very yeah. interesting from a cost effectiveness point of view so i think yeah. it's it's not just kind of that there's um the industry in certain areas is not very often doing head-to-head -head studies but it's also that um i think it's it's just a feasibility thing and and just yeah involvement yeah. of time uh, of uh, evidence over time um yeah, I'd like to say, yeah. so related to that, um, uh, I mean, some areas are developing ever so quickly as well. So, you know, what you might compare with what is currently the, the standard of care and then very quickly that moves on in the yeah. duration of your trial. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Also, yeah. Um, I mean, the, the licensing organisations, you know, that uh, give a licence to a new treatment have different requirements to the health technology assessment organisations that make decisions about whether something's cost-effective. And I think that drives some of the, the need for this as well. Yes, yes, for sure. The um, different stakeholders have very, very different um, questions about it. Um, in terms of the NMA, I think one notable thing is also that it um, combines both direct and indirect um, evidence into <laughs> one overall uh, estimate. So, so for example, let's say you had, as you said, uh, A versus C and B versus C, but you also have an A versus B maybe head-to-head -head study. Um, still, the NMA would integrate the direct evidence with the indirect evidence altogether. Yeah. So um, the method allows us to both pull the direct evidence and indirect evidence. And that's, that's actually quite helpful because um, if, if you don't have direct evidence, then you're reliant on the fact that it was sensible to combine the AB, the AC and the BC evidence. Um, whereas you've got no way of testing whether or not that was a sensible thing to do, whether or not the populations in the AC trials are going to give similar effects that would be seen in the BC trials and so on. Um, whereas if you've got both direct and indirect estimates, then you can compare those and see whether or not there's ever, you know, whether it is reasonable to combine those and whether they're telling a sort of consistent um, story. Yeah, I think this consistency is, is a very, very important kind of assumption that you need to have. And if you have this, if you, if you think about these NMAs and you have these 
yeah, these network diagrams really in mind with, with, with different nodes are the treatments and the, the edges are the kind of studies that are available or the randomized comparisons that are available, then whenever you have these closed loops, you can actually do these consistency checks. And mm-hmm. in a case where you have just a kind of star-shaped uh, network, um, which sometimes happens with the, you know, the middle point of the star being the possibly placebo, where all treatments were compared to placebo, you basically have no no chance to test this consistency. Yeah, that's right. Um, so yeah, yeah. Uh, and uh, you can you can try and if you don't have any loops in your evidence, then as you say, you can't test for whether or not the evidence and the direct and indirect evidence is sort of consistent or, or in line with each other. However, you can try and guard against it. Um, and you can do that by looking at um, or having very careful inclusion criteria um, as to the studies that you include in your analysis. Um, so most of these analyses will be based upon a systematic review where um, uh, searches are done to try and identify studies that are answering the question of interest in the population of interest. Um, and if those populations in one study are similar to those in another study, then we can be um, confident that there aren't too many differences in populations and so therefore we might expect the evidence to, to be similar, you know, to, to, to sort of agree. Um, whereas if there are big differences in populations, and especially in things which we might think might modify the treatment effects, then that is a, a risk of inconsistency and we should be very careful in that situation. Yeah, I think this population uh, or Patient characteristics um, feature is a very, very interesting one because I think up to now we have done that predominantly in looking into the, the uh, patient characteristics tables and you know just looking into them across all the different studies that we have included in in the um, or that came out of the SLR of the systematic literature review um, and that we then pulled into the NMA and just kind of descriptively showed, okay, what are kind of the patient characteristics and where there are potentially any outliers in terms of that uh, from from the uh, network meta-analysis to, just to see whether, you know, it makes sense of whether there are certain pay, uh, studies that have very, very different characteristics. Yeah, it's really important to distinguish between patient characteristics that are um, prognostic factors for the outcome of interest and those that are effect modifiers. So there are lots of things which affect how well patients do, you know, say their survival or their response to treatment. Um, But what's really important with the network meta-analysis is um, how those interact with the treatment effect. So if you've got something which means, well, you know, more severe patients will do less well, perhaps, and less severely ill patients. But if that doesn't, although they get, you know, they have a less good prognosis, if that doesn't interact with treatment, then that doesn't necessarily mean the network meta-analysis won't be valid. It's only if there's an interaction between those factors and the treatment effect. That, that we need to be concerned. 
Yeah, so so it it really is about kind of the um, treatment effects in terms of uh, treatment differences or uh, relative effect between tra- uh, treatments. So so for example, if you have an odds ratio, um, if that is stable across all kind of different baseline severities, then that is uh, not so much of a concern as if it actually. Um, changes with different uh, baseline severities. Also, kind of the actual response rates, you know, they might well, you know, be dependent on the actual uh, baseline risk for, and which would be kind of a, um, uh, a prognostic factor, but not a predict uh, predictive factor or treatment yeah. effect modifier. Yeah, yeah. So. In terms of these uh, treatment effect modifiers, um, you're just working on that to um, have a little bit better I- idea of how these could uh, impact the NMA. Um, can you tell a little bit how this approach works? Um, okay, um, so... Recently, there have been um, various uh, methods proposed to try and uh, allow for patient differences when, when it's suspected that there may be um, differences between trials and therefore we could potentially get biased results. So methods have been proposed to try and adjust for that. Um, and particularly in the context where a company has individual patient data for their trial, um, but they don't, of course, have individual patient data for the trials of their competitors' drugs. So methods have been um, proposed, which, um, well, there's been various methods proposed, but there's the matched adjusted indirect comparison method and the simulated treatment comparison method. Um, and essentially these try and uh, either, in the matched adjusted indirect comparison method, they reweight um, the studies, the, the, the the, the data in, in the study where they have individual patient data to match the proportions of patient characteristics in, in the other study and therefore get an estimate um, which has been sort of adjusted to be more similar to the other study. And the simulated treatment comparisons works in a similar way, but there they, they use regression-based methods to be able to, um, to, to do the adjustment to be able to make predictions in the other study population. Um, so those methods have been proposed. Um, we're working, um, uh, well, well, we've, been, we've been doing some work to try and sort of really understand the properties of those methods and critique them um, and to try and improve on those methods as well. So that, that's what our project's been involved in. Um, the, the, the biggest, one of the biggest problems is that if you've got individual patient data in your trial, those methods can allow you to make predictions in the population in your competitor's trial but that may not be the population that you're, you think is most relevant. It, it clearly wasn't the population that you randomized to your trial because your, your trial is different. Um, otherwise, you wouldn't be using these methods at all. So, so it has this limitation that it can make predictions in a different population, but it's the population of your competitor, not of your trial. So we've been working on methods that can allow... Um, a population adjustment to any population of interest and so if we have in mind a target population for a particular decision so let's say in the UK we wanted to make a, a decision for people who failed on first line treatment and are now having a second line treatment for for a cancer 
Um, we'd have a very clear population in mind and we probably would be able to get routine data to understand the characteristics of that population. So the idea being that we can adjust the the, um, uh, the populations in the trials and then make a prediction in the population of interest. So that's that's what we're, we're aiming to do. Yeah, I think you mentioned in your introduction a little uh, a word that I would like to dig a little bit deeper on and that is you mentioned the word bias. And mm -hmm. I think there is, especially when you think about um, network meta-analysis or meta-analysis overall, there's, there's very often comes up this term bias. So if if you think of bias in specifically here, what 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 is bias here? Um, okay, bias generally means if you get a result which is different to the one that you were intending to get, and, and it can occur through a whole range of different ways. Um, so we have um, sort of internal and external validity of estimates. So um, in a randomized trial, it, 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 you set out to estimate something in the in, in your study. And you may do that particularly well or badly if you have poor methodological um, uh, methods. For example, you don't randomize very well or patients aren't blinded to treatment or the assessors aren't blinded to treatment. Then we might have biased estimates of, of the thing we're trying to measure in, in the patients that we recruited. That's sort of a, a lack of internal validity. But what we're talking about here is a lack of external validity. So that's where we have an estimate that could be a, uh, resulting from a very well-conducted study, perhaps, um, that has really good internal validity, but it's measuring it on a particular population with a particular set of characteristics. And that estimate is you know, valid for that population, but may not generalize well into other populations. And so that's a lack of external validity if we're thinking about another population. So it's that kind of generalizability bias that we're really dealing with here. So um, like for the cancer uh, example you had, you may have a, a study that is conducted in first and second line patients, mm -hmm. but you're actually for your decision, you only want to include, you know, second-line patients. So, so kind of the overall estimate from the overall study is is biased in, in that regard that it doesn't um, correctly estimate the treatment effect for your decision. Yeah, okay. that, that's I mean that's a common example because if if let's say you've got a new drug that's in the same class that. That the, the, the patients might have had a first line treatment. Um, the fact that they failed on that and they're now at second line, th there's quite a high chance that they may fail on that treatment again because it's similar to the treatment they've already had. Whereas if it was a new novel treatment, then they may have a better outcome. So you could imagine there that the, the, the difference between the proportion of patients at first or second line may well interact with how effective the treatment is. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, I just wanted to make this point very clear because I think this is really kind of the core of the problem. Um, so, so with your new approach, you are able to kind of now, um, re, you know, remove that bias in terms of getting closer to your intended target population. What's the price that you need to pay for this? 
Okay. Um, so certainly with the, the matched adjusted indirect comparisons and simulated treatment comparisons, the those methods effectively, because you're regressing against lots of patient characteristics or you're re-weighting against a lot of different par- patient characteristics, that effectively reduces your sample size. Um, and so you get less precise estimates. So you adjust for um, a whole range of things, but you get less precise estimates. And I, I mean, our approach is slightly different to that, but essentially, so our, our approach integrates over the population characteristics to be able to get adjustments. But effectively, the more of that you have to do, the, the, the less precise your estimate. So, so basically, the more you move away from your study population, the less biased your results become, but also less precise. Um, I'm not sure if that's totally right, but the the more the more different the populations are to each other, mm-hmm. the more yeah, that, I think maybe that's what you're trying to say. The more different they are, the more you're going to need to adjust, um, and there's less overlap between populations, and therefore. Um, uh, you're going to get less precise estimates. But the other thing is the less overlap you have, the more you're sort of extrapolating into another population. And, of course, those extrapolations may or may not be valid. Yeah. So so I think you know, it, it, there is a price to pay. I mean, ideally, you would have a, a randomized controlled trial in the same populations and everybody, you know, and then you wouldn't have this problem in the first place. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So... so um... In terms of, so, so I think that it's a very, very nice example of a classical problem within statistics. You have either a highly biased and very precise estimate, or you have a less biased but unprecise estimate. Um, and the, um, and in terms of this kind of, um, overlap between the target population and your original kind of study population. Um, is there a kind of way to measure that somehow? Because I think it's kind of, it's, it's not very easy because the, the, it only matters in terms of the variables that are treatment effect modifiers, not those that are, don't have any impact on the, on the treatment effects, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's right. And I, actually, I think one of the, the problems, the way people have been using these methods is that um, they tend to adjust for everything under the sun because they want to be sure they've adjusted for everything. But actually, a lot of those would be prognostic factors and are not necessary to adjust. And so what they're really doing is just um, leading to less and less precise estimates. Um, in terms of how well you can be sure that you've adjusted for enough I mean, so identifying the effect modifiers is actually a difficult question, and it's kind of a clinical question rather than a statistical. Well, it's a statistical one and a clinical one. Um, I mean, statistically, we can check whether or not um, uh, particular variables interact with treatment effect, but you can only do that in the study that you've got individual patient data for. That may or may not be the case in the other study, and, and you simply don't know that. So it's an assumption that those effect modifiers will be common across the two populations. Yeah. Does that answer your yeah. question? I'm yeah. not sure. That is, I think that's a very, very good advice that kind of it's um, – the stats doesn't directly kind of 
alleviate from having an in-depth discussion with your uh, medical counterpart in terms of what really matters in terms of the um, in terms of treatment effect modifiers. And I think there it becomes very, very important to clearly communicate what is the difference between a treatment effect modifier and just a prognostic factor. Um, yeah, and I, I think that clinicians actually struggle with the distinction between those two concepts. They're very good at understanding what affects outcomes. They know that really well because that's what they see on a day-to-day basis. But how that interacts with treatment effects, it's less clear and it is harder. Yeah. Yeah. So, so would you recommend maybe to have as a starting point more rather fewer than many variables in that? Um, so I think as a starting point, you'd want to discuss with your clinical colleagues what things are, are likely to be important. Um, and also look part, through past literature in the same disease area as to which things have been shown in regressions to, to interact with treatment effects um, uh, and, and use that to guide you um, when you do your analysis of, 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 of the individual patient data. Okay, great. So, so I think we talked now a lot about kind of what's this nice new method can actually all do. Um, by the way, do you have a name for it already? Um, so, yeah. Okay, I, I think I think we need to clarify. So, so I haven't developed the, the match-adjusted indirect comparisons or the STC comparisons. Our group here are working on a new method, which is multi-level um, network meta-regression. That's what we're calling it. Multi- <laughs> ML, <Okay>. ML. <laughs> multi-level <laughs> network meta-regression. <laughs> okay. Um, okay. Um, But, but yeah, but but the, rather, there are some limitations with the make and the STC approaches, and and our approach we we hope overcomes those. Though it does still rely on assumptions. Yeah. So. yeah, yeah. Well, I think that's this kind of the more difficult the data is, the more more assumptions you usually need. So, in terms yeah. of um, if now listeners want to um, apply this approach, what would be kind of recommended first steps to look into this? Um, okay, so we haven't published our paper on this yet. <laughs> so uh, uh, I would say uh, um, until then, I, I don't think, uh, you know, you'd need to, to work with us, I guess. Um, but hopefully it will be published within the next few months and um, or, or certainly within the next year. Uh, and then I guess that would be the first place. Um, we plan to make uh, our code available to be able to run the routine. So um, and, and they're actually quite generic. So um, so watch the space, I think. <laughs> um, in terms of applying the existing methods, uh, uh, we have a, a, te- a technical support document for NICE um, which you can find in the NICE Decision Support Unit website. Um, and that, that's probably quite a good starting point because that reviews all of the existing methods and critiques. Them. Yeah, and it also has quite a lot of uh, code in, in it as well. So That's right, that's, yeah. That's very, very nice. Um, there's actually one additional thing you could do uh, as a listener. You could uh, just register for the PSI one-day event that happens uh, on, um, mid-September. And um, we'll put the link to the registration into the show notes, but you can also just go to the psiweb.org 
homepage to, to find out more about that. Um, and uh, Nikki is actually one of the um, panel uh, members that will um, review, kind of wrap up things at the end of the day. Um, the event, um, we actually organized it in a way to make it more interactive. So it's not just kind of lectures after lecture after lecture with a little bit of Q&A in between, but it has some uh, workshop style within it. Um, and we have people from uh, academia, industry, as well as actually from, from some HDA bodies um, there. What do you think about this kind of uh, structure, Nikki? Um, and I'm looking forward to it. Um, I think uh, it's nice to have a lot of discussion, especially on you know these sort of very new methods and there's lots of assumptions that lots of different approaches people have proposed. Um, so I think it, it's really good, and not just just to talk about you know we've made this method and here it is. It's more a case of how are we going to make this useful and used and. Um, you know, answering the questions that needed to be answered. Yeah, I think the what I really like about the day is that it touches on various different um, aspects of that. So, so it uh, looks into these matching adjusted indirect comparison. It looks into the um, multi-level NMA. Um, it has more theoretical um, people f uh, from academia there, but also people that actually apply it in day-to-day -day business within the uh, different companies. So um, I'm, I'm really looking forward to it. And um, yeah, as a PSI member, you get a reduced fee and um, actually by registering, you become a PSI member. Um, so that's, that's another, another benefit. Okay, very good. Thanks so much. Do you have some kind of um, final words for, for listeners that is completely new in this area and would like to, to step into it? Um, I, I, I guess, well, for a start, I'd encourage them to because it's really nice to be able to work in an area which you know has an impact on patients. Um, and I think there are lots of difficult uh statistical questions that need to be addressed so that we can you know make decisions based on really good robust yeah. evidence and i think just just one final quote we have talked lots about kind of the um, hda area the um, post-approval phase i actually think this has also quite an impact could have quite an impact on phase three design or phase two design so if you already kind of want to find out what's your perfect population for a study. Um, I think that could be also a very, very nice nice way to look into it. Yeah. Like what we do now with yeah. the NMAs that we run before we do a big study, I think that would be the future that we won't run these kind of things in different populations. Yeah, no, that sounds good. And, and that's a good way to get a good feeling for what the effect modifiers yeah. might be. Yeah. Okay, thanks so much, Nikki. I'm looking forward to meeting you in person in September in Bad Homburg. Okay. Bye. We thank PSI for sponsoring this show. Thanks for listening. Please visit theeffectivestatistician.com to find the show notes and learn more about our podcast to boost your career as a statistician in the health sector. 
If you enjoyed the show, please tell your colleagues about it.